Susan Scarf Merrill is the author of Shirley, a novel, which is a film starring Elizabeth Moss and Michael Stuhlberg. She is also the author of A Member of the Family and The Accidental to Bond, How Sibling Connections Influence Adult Relationships. She co-directs the Southampton Writers' Conference, is a program director along with Meg Wallitzer of the novel incubator program Bookends, and teaches in the MFA in Creative Writing and Literature at Stony Brook, Southampton. She served as fiction editor of the Southampton Review. Essays, book reviews, and short fiction appear most recently in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Review of Books, The Common Online, The Washington Post, and East Magazine. Susan Scarf Merrill, welcome to The Creative Process. No, I'm so glad to be here, Mia. Yes, so I think if we might begin with uh, one of your novels, surely a novel based on the life of Shirley Jackson, but also your imagined encounter with a, a, a young girl. Um, yes, yes. Yes, if you just, if you'd like to read a passage to give people a... Sure, so I'm going to read um, from very early on in the book. You have green eyes, she said. I handed her my end of the fitted sheet and she tucked the corners deftly together, folded again to make a smooth square, her knob-knuckled fingers making quick work of a task I'd never had to do. Bed-making I knew all too well, but oh, the luxury of a second set of sheets. No, I said, my eyes are blue. The closet door opened easily for Shirley, mistress of all the warped wood in this eccentric house. She stacked the folded sheets, nodded for me to follow her down the crumpled, cramped back staircase to the kitchen. There were breakfast dishes to do. She washed, her hands reddened by the soapy water. I dried. Finally, she responded. Envy. It's wanting what other people have. Well, that was pointless to deny. I added two chipped saucers to the stack on the cupboard shelves. One of the black cats, the one with the white splash of fur on her paw, undulated irritably from behind the teacups, tail high. Shirley emptied the water from the basin, splashing the faucet stream to rinse the scummed soap left behind. I only want what I have, she said. I want exactly what I have. She wiped her hands on the dish towel, pushed you her wedding band back on with a grimace. You know who you love, I said. She laughed as if I'd said something terribly clever, and then she added, I'll do what's needed to keep what's mine. I see. I could picture my mother waiting outside the playground fence when I was very young, feeling herself unwelcome or unworthy while I played with classmates. Was it love that made her hover there? I didn't know. She did what was needed, just as Shirley claimed to do. You protect what's yours. Yes, she answered calmly. I do. Well, I think that's a very interesting window into the novel and into female relationships, um, mm -hmm. artistic relationships, rivalries, envy, of course, exist there too. Um, so just tell me what, I knew you went to Bennington. I did. And, and what, I mean, there, there are many interesting writers, but what attracted you particularly to Shirley? I, I went up to Bennington to the writing seminars with my husband to give a talk. And while I was giving the talk, I uh, sat in on some of the graduate lectures that the writing seminars MFA candidates have to do. And I got in the car to drive home and I said to my husband, I, I want to go to grad school. I want to go there. And I had already published two books at that point. I really, 
Um, there was no logical reason that I would be going to grad school, but I had always sort of thought that there that there was something that I would be more comfortable with if I went through a grad program. And so six months after I um, gave that talk, I was actually in the next class at, um, at the writing seminars. And um, it's a low residency program, so you develop a reading program with your mentor and you uh, exchange uh, fiction and annotations on the books that you're reading all semester long, you know, for six months. And so in the very first meeting that I had with this writer named Rachel Paston, she said, well, what, you, what is it that you're interested in learning? And I said, well, I really want to write about domestic things, but with a twist, with some kind of magic in them. And she said, have you ever read Shirley Jackson? And I had read Haunting of Hill House, you know, when I was 12. And I, um, and I, went back home and I reread Haunting of Hill House and then I read We Have Always Lived in the Castle and by the end of the semester I had read everything Shirley had written and I uh, came back up to school for my second semester and I was meeting with my new mentor and, um, and I said uh, that I had been reading her and he said, well you know she lived here, she lived and worked here and I said, no, I had no idea because I knew nothing about her life story. And so then I went to the library at the college and I realized that she lived in a house for one of the two houses that she lived in the whole time she lived in Bennington uh, was a house I had walked by every day on my way to uh, get coffee and that that market where I was buying my cup of coffee every morning was Powers Market where the idea for the lottery came to her and there's a famous story about how uh, she went running home from the grocery store pushing the pram up the hill wow. and went in and wrote the story in three hours and oh, um, and so it just kept happening for me that um, that I would meet somebody and they would say, oh, well, my husband was best friends with one of the Hyman children, one of Shirley's children, when, uh, when, uh, when they were in high school, or um, I have this treasure trove of letters, or I know this person who was Shirley's husband's best friend, and things just kept happening. She wow. just kept sort of uh, pushing into my consciousness in some way and so if in many ways I felt as if she found me I didn't find her yeah. um, and we have to listen to these songs I mean there it's like yeah yeah we have, one of the things as artists is to know when these opportunities or these signs are knocking on our imaginations yeah and yeah. and the way that um, when actors are doing improv they mm -hmm. always say yes and rather than no but yeah. um, I just kept saying yes to the next thing and it kept leading to yeah. something else I really I think for a long time I thought I would write a biography of her and um, and there was really uh, but the and I was very interested in that idea and the idea of what her life had been. It was a short life and it was a, an odd life. But for me, the question that I was really interested in with her was the question of how this 
woman who at 19 had fallen in love with this man and the letters they wrote to one another which are in the Library of Congress and mm -hmm. are so incredible intelligent erotic love letters how how those people could have ended up as the unhappy people that I believed that they were at the end of their mm. life together. Um, I really was very curious about the course of a long relationship and how things can sort of slowly go awry. And I think that was the question I most wanted to answer. And the, the more I thought about how to do that, the more it became clear to me that that was a fictional question um, rather yes, than... Yes, you couldn't say definitively, but... Yeah, and nor did I want to. I really yeah. wanted to explore that idea of the reasons that we imagine. And also, um, I, I was very interested in the idea... So Rose, the narrator of this book, is, um, is somebody who has really no mother of her own and sees in Shirley um, both a mother figure and also somebody who she, who, uh, who she wants to... Um, to kind of best in some way. So there's both competition and adoration. Mm -hmm. And I was also really interested in that way that we, um, that we look at our heroes and want to see flaws in them. And mm -hmm. so that was also something that I felt was better explored fictionally. Um, Rose really has a fantasy about who Shirley is and what Shirley's capable of that has no relationship to anything that is possibly true because Rose fictionalizes this real person. And yeah. so on maybe more than one level, I was doing that in the book. No, it is fascinating. And can you speak a little bit to the responsibilities or the freedoms of writing a novel about, about a, real a real person? person. <laughs> yes, yes. You can write about anybody who's dead mm -hmm. legally. You have no... Uh, worries in that way there are sort of there are moral questions about what does it mean to tackle you know the the life of somebody who's a real figure in the world and you know everybody from Hilary Mantel writing about Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell to um, to almost anybody that I can think of you know writing about Marilyn Monroe or mm -hmm. writing about um, the you know the 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 family that was killed and in cold blood. I mean that that we we have this um, we have this sort of dual train where um, if you are going to imagine things about real people, you have a tremendous responsibility to what their um, legacy is and should be. And I was very careful in the structuring of the book in that there is nothing that surely says or does in this novel that isn't seen through Rose's eyes and colored by the fact that Rose herself is a person of, um, of enormous neediness and mm -hmm. some delusion about right. who Shirley is. So I think there would be no other way to, do, to take on something like this for me because mm -hmm. hitting her life, Shirley's life, head on, straight on, would have been something I wouldn't have felt was a moral thing to do. Right. And what did you discover about her and, and yourself, I suppose, also in the writing of the novel? Well, that's such a good question. <laughs> and, and I'm not entirely sure what I discovered 
about her, I mean, I certainly, what I imagined about her was how she got from A to, to Z in a certain way and what it would be like to go through a, a fallow period in one's career. Because um, I was really writing about a period of time when she was agoraphobic and she did, you know, didn't leave the house and wasn't writing. And uh, that, was, um, that was tremendously interesting to me and I think something that resonated for me personally because at the time that I went to grad school, you know, I had really been wrestling with um, whether I wanted to continue writing or not and whether I had anything else that I wanted to say. So mm -hmm. I, get, I guess you could say that I learned that writers write <laughs> um, no matter what and that, you know, she has this wonderful uh, moment in her journals, which, as I say, are at the Library of Congress and so well worth going to look at. I cannot recommend that journey highly enough, um, where she uh, is responding to something that her therapist has said to her, and she writes in her journal, writing is the way out, writing is the way out, writing is the way out. And I think that's true. I learned something about how novelistic truth is different from human truth in writing this book. Um, and as I say for myself, I think I learned that no matter what, I'm just going to keep doing it, no matter what yeah. happens, that it wasn't really, it isn't really a thing that I have a choice about doing, not, yes. in, a, not in a kind of weird, like overly dramatic way. It's just something I love to do so much. Yeah. Well, those so. other writers have told me, well, some say in a joking way, not like it's an affliction, but it's like something it's just a part of you. Yes. And if you had a choice, you wouldn't be a writer. Oh, yeah. no, I yeah. would be. I mean, yeah. I think but I get... It's like, it's like yeah. from yeah. something that's innately part of you. you I know? think that in the sort of decade surrounding, um, you know, the publication of the previous novel, through going to grad school, through writing the book about Shirley, this whole experience was really about um, realizing that... Um, that I, that I love to do it, even mm -hmm. if I don't always like to do it. And I think the parallels to um, the question about what a long-term marriage is are related. Some famous person uh, was asked, you know, like, you know, what's the secret to, uh, you know, to a happy, to a long marriage? And they said, uh, something like staying in it maybe for some people sounds terribly depressing but for me is um, actually thrilling it's the oh, idea yeah. of committing and I think when I looked at Shirley and Stanley their relationship was far crazier than my long marriage by mm -hmm. by any means but the idea that over their basically 30 years together before she died they um they were a lot of things to one another, muse and helpmeet and co-parent and, um, in their case, betrayers and uh, prodders and um, lovers and haters. And I think they are an exaggerated version of what um, real life is. And I found looking at them to be inspiring also in terms of life 
that somebody can go from being your greatest lover to being your greatest you know work partner and then back and that kind of ebb and flow of relationship over a long life i just i don't know i find it very beautiful it's just like a work of art as you say to allow one to be seen to be witnessed in all exactly. one's details by another person exactly and, and that's why it, i mean a lot of those a lot of marriages fail i think because they're not free enough or yes honest enough even with yeah. themselves so how can you share yourself with another person if you're not going to face yourself honestly as well yeah, yeah. Uh, so i do think it is a, an act of courage and yeah. yeah yeah and so that question that i set out to answer mm -hmm. i think i did answer in the process yeah. um and it was the answer you know, as often is, it was the answer that I would have thought going in in some way, but at the end I knew it as opposed to believed it. Yeah, the how is so important. Yeah. It was a really wonderful project. Um, and it was hard to leave the project behind afterward. Um, and I, this, which brings us to now, it, it's taking on another life. Um, oh, as a film, yeah. yes. I have only... Uh, uh, bystander uh, input in some way. You know, I've spoken to the screenwriter who I think is terrific a number of times, but I'm not writing it. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm thrilled by what she's written. And and we went up to the filming, and I loved what I saw, and I'm very excited about. And the actors involved are also um, really the directors, and yes. yeah. So Josephine Decker is directing, and. Uh, the actors are, the Shirley and Stanley are being played by Elizabeth Moss and Michael Stolberg, and they're just, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing to me that mm -hmm. this has happened to this little book, because I think in a certain way, seeing uh, people who I imagined embodied by actors and seeing the actors go through takes and try different emotions and feelings and approaches to words that I made up I mm -hmm. you know there's something so uh narcissistically gratifying about it um I would equate it to the you know the moment when a child is born and you're first holding the child and you and your other person are looking at the child together and saying mm -hmm. we made this like mm -hmm. and you have no idea what it really is, it's just this human mm -hmm. who at that brief, for a brief moment you believe is 50% you and 50% this other person mm -hmm. and that, you know, that's magic. Mm -hmm. And that was what the filming felt like to me, the, you know, the part that I saw. So I'm, that's very, it's very exciting to me. Yeah. So. No, it's interesting too, and then and then how the, uh, an actor can embody, or the whole you know, the, there's also crew involved in setting it up, but how they they can fill out spaces that you know, because a novel is an interior space, so there's yes. that which is very highly articulated, but then there's all these nuances of tone, and just to see that because in some ways when you're writing a novel. I think you're probably, you are thinking about tone, but you're thinking about it with your own voice right. in some way. Right. Even if you imagine, you're thinking. Right. And then they add to it these little um, nonverbal things that are just amazing. Yeah. So 
you know, watching take after take of this particular scene with um, Elizabeth Moss and watching her try different kinds of upset and anger and crazy and tired and drunk and, you know, like different nuances for this exchange, which was maybe a two-minute um, exchange. I, I don't know. It was one of the most incredible things mm. I've ever witnessed in my life. And I can't imagine how thrilling it will be to see the, the mm. whole, yes. you know, the whole film. So I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, it's so nice. I mean, you can just see it in your face. Some writers don't get, um, talk about the lottery, sometimes <laughs> don't get people who are sensitive to the material or doesn't come together for, but oh. you just... Yeah. No, the screenwriter, what she did with my book was so smart that um, I can't even, you know, mm -hmm. to, to reduce a full novel to, you know, an hour and a half or whatever it will end up being, um, what she did was so brilliant. I was astounded. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, it's a very different kind of brain from my mm -hmm. kind of brain, and I... I could use some of that directed streamlining. It was really, it was really, I was so impressed by what I read. Yeah. So her name is Sarah Gubbins. She's fabulous. Yeah. So. No, it is interesting that, because sometimes on the page there's things, the, the scripts, you know, for film or television, they don't look like it's something, you know? Right. Right. Well, of course, I yeah. know these you people. You know that you know it. I know these yeah. people. So so when that can yeah. be done and it and it compresses it beautifully, yeah, it's like music or something, poetry like that. I like it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There was in my program there there was an actor mm. who was a very who's a very bright guy, and um, I remember in one workshop that I was in with him. He he, uh, just shared a short story, and I remember thinking, I don't understand. There's not enough emotional direction in the story for me. And at that mm -hmm. point, I didn't know he was an actor. And maybe a year later, somebody said, you know, oh well, you know, he acts. And I thought, oh well, that makes perfect sense because he believed that on the page things would become embodied. Mm -hmm. You know, exactly. He left space for his own. Yes, input, yeah. which if he was writing a screenplay, he would be exactly right. Yeah. But for a short story, it was less effective. I had no idea what that that was what it was, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm sure he's writing beautiful stuff now. I mean, mm -hmm. he's a very bright person, but that was really surprising to me because I just think that the mindsets are so different, and to realize that that was what it was was kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, it is. It is yeah. nice that. And so, in in terms of Shirley and her most well known works, how did they? I don't know a lot about her life. So, how did they echo things in her life? Or oh, that's a really good question, and I'm not entirely sure I'm qualified to answer it. But I will say, because I know a lot about what she studied in school, mm -hmm. that. Um, well, so her first novel was set in a community like the community that she grew up in. And then she was very interested in mythology and in folk ballads and folk music and 
in Jungian imagery and Freud and so you can see in all of her work this very high level of reference and comfort with uh, psychoanalytic thought, with mythology and folk tales, with ballads. So, for example, uh, the volume of short stories that the lottery was collected in, the original title was The Adventures of James Harris, and um, then it was changed, I believe, to The Lottery or The Adventures of James Harris. And James Harris is a figure from British ballads, and um, he is uh, the lover who, uh, he's the demon lover who, uh, the, who disappears and after plating, you know, his true love and he goes off to sea and many years later, you know, in at least the version that, um, I used in the book, he comes back after the woman he was in love with has married and had children and, um, he comes back and, entices her to come out to sea with him and run away and as she gets on the boat uh, he turns around and she sees that he has the tail of the devil you know Gosh. and Joyce Carol Oates uses a version of this in that short story where are you going where have you been, oh, been? Yeah, which is right, yeah. the most wonderful story and other people as well but but Shirley used uh, James Harris that name and references to that ballad all over the place. She had a short story called The Demon Lover. She often had characters named James um, mm -hmm. or James Harris or Jim or, you know, and um, so she had certain thematic things that she kept returning to mm -hmm. and she was very interested in mental illness. Um, she has two novels, really, um, The Bird's Nest and Hangs a Man that are overtly about psychological breaks uh, uh, and then we have always lived in the castle is obviously about a murdering young girl, um, you know, a murderous young girl. And Eleanor in the Haunting of Hill House. I mean, she's she was very interested in the psychology of women and the vulnerability, psychological vulnerability. So, I think that was probably partly or largely because it was also true of her. Right. And in your own work. And I'm thinking about the other themes that you've dealt with in, in other books of focus on family, whether um, fiction or non-fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've just discussed some of those themes. And we were talking before dinner the other night about how uh, architecture, bringing in your mm -hmm. husband, um, right. James Merrill, how... Also a gym, but not... A gym, <laughs> I was thinking about that. You yes. have your own, <laughs> my own gym. Yeah. Um, yeah, and how you, you approach books or stories from, from that point of view, yeah. So. so, I mean, that's something that I have um, really grown into, and I think with Shirley, with Shirley, that was the first time that I very consciously um, used the notion of what a house is and what, um, what a house does for a character uh, you know, as part of the planning of a book. And of course, because Shirley was agoraphobic, mm -hmm. I mean, it was sort of given to me in mm -hmm. a certain way, but I also think that was part of the appeal for me. The, the idea of a novel as a, as a structured narrative that you wander through and that 
the intent of the of the architect, the writer, the intent is uh, to drive you through the rooms uh, with a particular uh, kind of information reveal. And yeah. um, that's something that I think Jim brings very consciously to his design work in terms of how you live and work in houses that he creates. And I have been trying more and more to bring to my written worlds in terms of how they are experienced as um, as holes that are, you know, that as whole institutions that you go through. Sure, to to different extents, whether it's a larger narrative or not. You're world building, and I think that particularly with novels, short stories, it depends on the length, but people inhabit novels, and they're yeah. sorry to leave them, and they return to them, you know, they right. reread them, right. they have that sense. And and often there is the sense that uh, that you can walk through mm-hmm. a, a house of a novel that you have really loved. You can walk through Northanger Abbey a thousand right. times, or um, Moby Dick, or Light in August. That these are books that welcome you back time and time mm-hmm. again. I think that's true of Shirley's work. I've yeah. read all of her books multiple times, and mm-hmm. they never cease to. Um, to reveal new things to me, mm-hmm. and that would be, that would be a goal for me as well. Something that I would strive towards is that I would, I would like that kind of world building to take place. Mm-hmm. That you, that you can see a different view out each window every time you pass them. So. Yeah. My name is Anna Chu, and I am a junior at McAllister College, majoring in English. As I explore my future in my career, I am beginning to understand the importance of immersing oneself in the lives, thoughts, and choices of the people around me, whether fictional or real. In this podcast, Susan Scarf Merrill speaks a lot about the research that went into the writing of her book, Shirley, a novel. Shirley Jackson's constant appearance and reappearance in Susan Scarf Merrill's life during grad school influenced her writing of Shirley. The idea that if something is important, it will always find a way back into your life resonated with me, because when I first started college, I intended to go into math or economics. Many people told me writing would be important in all fields, but what I came back to and what came back to me was reading and writing creatively. As Susan Scarf Merrill delved further and further into Shirley Jackson's life by reading her letters and journals and talking to people who knew her or her husband, she began to flesh out a life she never would have known otherwise. People know Shirley Jackson as a writer, but who was the Shirley Jackson in her letters? The Shirley Jackson as a friend? The Shirley Jackson moving through everyday life? Susan Scarfman got to know Shirley Jackson as fully as the world had allowed her through written and spoken accounts, and knowing someone that well is incredibly important for a writer. And the more I came to know myself, the more I realized that I am a writer even when I wanted to avoid it. I tried a lot of different majors when I first came to college to avoid English, just because it didn't seem sensible. However, I was working towards a future that would support my love for writing and reading, not because I loved what I was studying. While part of me still wavers and thinks I should choose something like math or economics, I realize that even in a so-called sensible major, I won't necessarily have a job or be able to support myself. 
I realized that I'm going to change so much in my lifetime and try so many new things in my lifetime and that my major will not define what I do in my lifetime. My life is not a book. Going from point A to point B is not written down for me. Every field can be considered a gamble, but if I trust in myself, maybe I can spend these college years enjoying my time instead of worrying about what comes next. One way that I'm trying to improve myself in my writing is just by getting to know people. I used to think that fictional works were just that, fiction, but I couldn't be more wrong. I love stories. I love cracking open a book and diving into fantasy worlds that take me on adventures far away from my own room now in as a kid. Those kinds of stories are still so important to me. But what motivates me to write now is fiction that has a little bit of reality scattered into the characters. My writing is changing every day because of the stories I read and the people I encounter. The first time I felt like I could reach towards a future as a writer was my freshman year of college when I met my creative writing professor. I met her before even taking her class, and she asked me about myself, my careers, my goals, and what I wanted. Question after question, answer after answer, it was supposed to be an interview of her for my class, but it turned into an interview of me. She had a way of asking simple questions that opened me up to myself entirely. At the end of our first meeting, she told me she would save a place for me in her class next semester if I wanted. She moved me to tears almost every single time we spoke, not because she was harsh, but because she had a way of pulling out the real me, someone I didn't know yet, someone I didn't want to know even. Through her in this class, I came to know myself better as a writer. The stories I wrote as a kid were wildly exciting to explore. Before I could write something meaningful, I had to stop being afraid of the person I wanted to be and get to know myself. Before I could write meaningful stories, I had to learn how to listen to other people. Honestly, I still have a long way to go in knowing how to ask good questions to get answers that are beyond surface level. But I wouldn't have gotten to where I am now without learning about myself and caring about myself first. I want to liken myself to the narrator in Shirley. Rose Nemser is 19, 20 years old. A little too young and naive, but determined. Everybody around Rose puts her down, dismisses her, and sometimes Rose even dismisses herself. However, I take my professor's advice with me everywhere now. I've stopped saying, I don't know, because I do know. I know what I want. I know what I can do. I know what to say. I just have to pause, think, and trust in myself. It's, it's so interesting to visit the spaces also where writers or artists work. I was just at the uh, Paulette Krasner house, but oh, also, cool. um, you know, writers' houses to see where they worked. Mm -hmm. And although it's not always clear, you know, where, what, some, yeah. particularly writers who spend a long time in their house, like Flannery O'Connor, or whatever, you know, like, right. really, right. you are like, oh, that's... I kind of this is familiar, you know. Well, well, it's funny because I think I think we um, and it, and this actually pertains to the book I'm working on now. Is I think that we that we imbue uh, certain spaces with magic, and we believe that all the good work took place right here at mm -hmm. this desk, and and I think. For most of the people I know, and I suspect for almost everybody, that different days demand different postures and different spaces. I mean, mm -hmm. 
sometimes you have to lie down in bed and sometimes you have to stand up at the counter and sometimes mm -hmm. you have to loll on the couch and sometimes you're lying on the floor on your stomach and sometimes you're at your desk, yes, but mm -hmm. not every day is a desk day, even, mm -hmm. even with the same notebook or um, typewriter or computer or whatever you, dictaphone, whatever you use, you kind of have to move around with the material because mm -hmm. the material has to move around because it's alive in a certain way in your head and you're bringing it to life and you can't always, I don't think most people, I could be wrong, mm -hmm. but I suspect that most people move around a lot in their mm -hmm. creation spaces. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you read your work out loud? I do, yeah. I do. And um, I, I read it out loud to myself and then I, tortured my husband with it as well. Uh -huh. And I think it really matters. I do not have a poet sensibility at all, mm -hmm. but I can definitely hear when things are wrong. And I talk a lot about this with my students at Stony Brook, the yeah. idea of um, the mouthfeel of prose, mm -hmm. that um, it's not just poetry that has to have good mouthfeel. Mm -hmm. If you write something and it's not possible to read it out loud, it tells you something about the material. It's probably quite forbidding in certain ways. And there are people um, who are consciously writing in that way. They want the mm -hmm. material to be difficult. I don't. So yeah. Well, people do hear it in their head, even if they don't say it out loud. So. Yeah, but if something is very difficult to grasp on mm -hmm. the page, it's often very difficult or arrhythmic to read out loud. Mm -hmm. I... I'm really obsessed with punctuation and paragraphing mm -hmm. and um, the way repetition sometimes works and sometimes doesn't and mm -hmm. the resonances that one comes close to from work that one loves. I, I have buried a book in every book I've written and I will continue to do that. I love the way that I can feel the ghost of other people's mm -hmm. books in my yeah. work. I mean, it was obvious with Shirley that yeah. I was um, burying the haunting of Hill House in there because mm -hmm. I was, <laughs> you know, um, and I think it's pretty clear that, um, that that Rose's breakdown has some kinship with Eleanor's uh, lack of a mother, of a, of a good mother and um, need for a home. Um, but with every book I've done that. I really love the work that I have, that I love that I've read. I mean, the, yeah. the books that are really sort of part of my being and mm -hmm. I'm always playing with resonance. It's funny, I, before I came here, I did a guided meditation with a friend oh, of mine and yeah. she said something as I was coming out. She said, well, what were you thinking about? And I said, Odysseus, because there, there were all of these of course, um, as one does. does. As one does. But oh. it, there was some part of the meditation where the person was saying, you know, oh, picture a, a shore and then picture a roiling sea and then picture the shore again. And I started thinking of Odysseus and um, the sirens and Scylla and Charybdis. I think that I think that way a lot. Mm. About echoes. About echoes, yeah. 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 Then going back to the echoes of your novel and the, the haunting of Hill House. And have you known many or any um, 
artistic characters um, or writers um, who, who like to exert an influence on people around them to kind of call them for material or... Oh, that's so funny that you asked this question because I have a student who just published a, a really, he won a prize and this, this wonderful story that he wrote was, um, was published and um, he said to me that he had used some uh, features of the life of someone that he knows, but not, it's had nothing to do with the story. It's just yeah. that maybe the jobs or a physical, I don't even know yeah. what it was. And, um, and somebody not the people that he used, but mm -hmm. somebody who knows them wrote to him and said, that was a terrible thing that you did. You stole, you know, that so-and-so is an accountant or mm -hmm. something, you know, I don't even know what it was. And I wrote back to him, you know, he was very upset and he couldn't sleep. He was, thought this was such a bad thing that he had hurt these people so terribly. And I directed him to this wonderful article that was in the New Yorker, I think in like 1984, when um, American Pastoral came out. Okay. And um, the guy that Philip Roth was writing about in that absolutely amazing novel was interviewed in Shouts and Murmurs, and he was very flattered at, at having become the subject of this novel. He didn't even know Philip Roth, mm -hmm. but they went to the same high school, and his story was something that Roth knew about. But there's this part, and I'm paraphrasing it now, in that article where Roth says to somebody, anybody who makes friends uh, with a working novelist should know that their life is fair game. You know, yeah. if you confide in somebody who writes for a living, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I usually ask, I usually say, somebody tells me a story and I say, can I use that? That's amazing. And, you yeah, know, just to... Yeah, yeah, but but I think you also are not really conscious most of the time about what you've stored mm -hmm. without kind of saying, oh, well, this is about that, mm -hmm. you know, or this is so-and-so's story, and it just comes, it bubbles up from your mm -hmm. unconscious, you know, a decade later, and you have no idea where it came from. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to know what's stealing and not stealing because the imagination is built out of, this kind of freedom, this free, sure. this trash bin of sometimes everything you've you thought be, about. Yeah, when you're less explicit or sometimes you can be maybe more devastating, you know, but when it's not like, oh, so clearly, oh, that's their job or whatever, but it's a sense or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I, I like to be respectful. <laughs> well, yes. I, yeah. I do as well. Yeah. I mean, I would never, like my student, I would never want to hurt anybody and yet, um, I think there are some that do. That's why I ask. I wonder. Oh, do you think so? I don't think so. I'm not sure if it's writers, but I just did an interview with this kind of cool Spanish director who is interesting, but he uses non-professional actors, and, and, and he was quite proud that, oh, I think this lady, because he does these things about these historic figures like um, Cervantes or Casanova or Dracula, mm -hmm. and so anyway, he, he gathered a bunch of people together and, 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 and he was quite proud that he had like s split up relationships like half oh my the people God. half the people oh, that's terrible it wasn't I, it was in my research well, he was talking to me about it but it was in another interview he, I said, 
she was happy that half the people broke up after your movie. <laughs> oh, that's just terrible. That's so just I'm not terrible. sure of novelists, but directors maybe are used to kind of <laughs> guiding people. That's extreme. That's yeah. probably rare, you know. But so as I was um, thinking about how I was going to, um, who Rose was before I had even started writing. I, um, you know, my mom grew up very, very poor in um, South Philadelphia, and uh, um, and I imagined that that was Rose's history. And I called my mom up and I said to her, you know, can I write about you in this novel I'm writing? And she's like, sure, sure. So by line two of the backstory, I was already imagining an entirely different. Uh, history for my mother. In other words, there's no truth to that, to the story of Rose, which is my mother's truth, except that she grew up poor in Philadelphia. But when yeah. my mom said, oh, of course, use anything you want, then I kind of took that stable base and just went off where my mind took me. Exactly. You weren't restricted, but it's very important to have that kernel of reality to get you going. Whatever yeah. gets you going, right? Yeah. yeah, and I had, you know, this sort of, I mean, from, you know, so my mom had dark, has dark hair and, you know, Rose is blonde and she, you know, like there were, there weren't, there were no characteristics in common, either physical or emotional or anything, and yet, having that kind of permission to imagine a solid person, a, you know, a real person, somehow was the permission that I needed to go forward. Most people, unlike this yeah. director, I think most people are, are not really trying to be in reality, which is one of the funny things about writing about a real person. And, you know, my editor said, at the time, you know, she said, a novel has never been written larger across the front of a book than it was, you know, surely, a novel, because, you know, yeah. she, she wanted to be very clear that this was an act of imagination, and why that person rather than an imagined person? I think because she was such a profoundly important kind of creative partner for me emotionally she didn't yeah. know me but I knew sure. her and I was so projected into her in terms of my imaginings that having the permission to imagine this real person allowed me to move forward in this other way with some of the discussion of the film some people have called it a, a biopic and I was like because it's so not yeah. you know it's you know, it's an imagopic. The I think people are, are attracted to that now. I think that they're, you know, biopics do well, but yeah. I think that they are attracted to where it veers off because then, you know, you kind of know it already. So you, if you go into it knowing mm. what you're going to receive, it's so, it yeah. kills the imagination. So. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, I were in my class, uh, last night, we were t we were talking about this particular book, and somebody said something about the movie Titanic, which I've never seen, uh -huh. um, for no particular reason except that at this point now I've just never seen it. And uh, I made a joke about, well, I know I know how the story <laughs> ends, though. And they the students were like, No, you don't, you don't at all. Cause <laughs> 
very different from that. But, um, and of course that's true, but it, it's just funny. I do think there is a way in which we really like to um, have an, uh, an alternate angle onto something that we consider that we really understand and that right. there's this greater depth of understanding that can come from playing with something that it feels familiar and known. Yeah, that's the real pleasure, the voyeuristic pleasure is that, that yeah. wow, that was not, because they, you know, people are careful about their lives, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would just, you know, with my book, I would hate to have somebody read the book and go, oh, that's the true story, she was, you know, she, she was a terrible person, I mean, like, I don't feel that at all, I feel that Rose is very confused about Shirley, but yeah. I am not, and right. really, for me, the gray area where I worry is people not understanding that Rose is a character with a limited insight into the world she's mm -hmm. seeing, you know, so. So speaking about young artists, or mm -hmm. um, tell us more about the program at Stony Brook Southampton, mm -hmm. um, the Writers' Conference, the different things that you direct. And the MFA program at Stony Brook Southampton which is also and also has a branch in Manhattan as well. It's just a really it's a really terrific program that has a, you know fiction, nonfiction, poetry, memoir. Um, that we also have a film and television making MFA television writing MFA, and um, we have the I think the first first podcasting program as well. And the writers who teach in my part of the program in the part where I work um, include Amy Hempel, Cornelius Eady, uh, Paul Harding, Roger Rosenblatt, it's a, uh, Meg Wallitzer, uh, Melissa Bank, Matt Clam. It's just a wonderful, vibrant, uh, Cornelius Eady, I said him, uh, th thrilling program to work in and a very um, happy program. I think our students are very well taken care of and very well loved. And the two programs that I direct, I, I co-direct the Southampton Writers Conference with a wonderful writer named Christian McLean. And that conference is, I think, 45 years old. We have not been mm -hmm. directing it all that long. Mm -hmm. um, but it's 12 days in the summer and we bring in additional wonderful writers. I mean, the idea is really to supplement our students' experience with other writers who can inform and uh, alter their worldviews, and we open up that conference to the public as well and so people apply to become part of it and there are five-day workshops 12-day workshops uh, residencies uh, a lecture series and we just we do wonderful things and as my um, interest in structure and how things are put together has become more and more part of the way that I think about the writer's experience. We've been bringing in really interesting people to talk about structure. So this year, Akiba Goldsman, who is the, you know, is a writer and producer. Um, he, he, I believe, he was either a writer or producer of A Beautiful Mind and Batman, and he just really understands narrative and he's going to come mm -hmm. in and talk about the myth that underlies the narrative arc and Lucas Nath the playwright every year gives a lecture about some about revision or um, this year I believe he's going to be talking about dialogue and 
the short story writer Karen Benders. Um, I think she's actually going to speak about revision this year. But so we we so we bring in um, day trippers mm -hmm. to enhance uh, what our faculty uh, teach as well. And so it's just it's a really vibrant, exhausting, wonderful, mm -hmm. mentally challenging experience. And then the other program that I co-direct with Meg Wallitzer is a program called Bookends, and that is a program. It's a one-year non-certificate non-degree program for writers who have a full-length manuscript that is almost there and they mm. just need they just need a kind of year of coaching and polishing to get to the next place and it's a very small program we're never going to have more than 12 students we're generally focused on fiction on novels but uh, we took one set of linked short stories this year and we're open to memoir we're in our second year uh, we did a pilot program a year ago and we're halfway through our first real year and we've had really remarkable results we um, this year's class that isn't even finished. Oh. We've had a novel sold already wow. in October, uh, so we're just we're feeling it's very, and very optimistic and yeah. gratified by it. And um, it's a really unique program that Meg and I put together that really focuses on making the book its best self, but also on learning to think about a long work of art, which I think. You know, it's hard. You do that in thesis in an MFA program, but generally finishing the draft for many people is the best they can do, or a second rewrite or something like that. And you get your second readers and your third readers, and you see that you have a lot of work left to do, but you um, can't quite see your way through it. And this is just a, it's a mentoring program that mm -hmm. is really quite wonderful. So the Students work in pods of three all year long. They meet wow. every two weeks all year mm -hmm. uh, for three hours every two weeks. And it's mostly done by Skype. Um, um, oh, it's, so it's not even... A no, residence. it's a long-distance program. But uh -huh. they start in residence during the conference. So they're yeah. at the conference for 12 days. Then they work um, in their pods every two weeks all year. And then in December, each one of the students gets a mentor, mm -hmm. Amy Hempel, Paul Harding, Karen Bender, um, Scott Cheshire, me, Meg, uh, Ursula Heggie, mm -hmm. um, Dan Menneker, oh, Jennifer people. Gilmore. We have yeah. fabulous people and they work one-on-one -on -one with the mentor during the second semester while continuing to meet in their pods. And then at the end of the second semester, uh, each manuscript is screened by a really high-powered mm -hmm. agent and the student meets for an hour with that agent who has read the entire manuscript and in our pilot class one person was signed on the spot and the other five were asked to revise and resubmit and they are doing that now and we're just oh actually no two people were agented by the end of the summer and four there are four who are in revision still but they're really directed revisions by the yeah. agents and they're resubmitting to the same people so we feel like we really have a methodology that is unusually smart for understanding how a book wants to find out what it wants to be.
Wow, so. no, I think that's so important because I speak to a lot of students and that's really what they want to do and a lot of other courses fulfill other aspects that they might know themselves but are superfluous to what their real goals are. Uh -huh. You know, mentorship is so important, and right. uh, and this is the real focused mentorship. It's not just a vague thing. No, um, and yeah. there's a whole um, there's a whole set of rules for. And when I say rules, I don't mean there's a kind of rubric for how they interact with one another and yeah. what they uh, what the pods do together because yeah. it's you know it's not like workshopping. Yeah, it sounds supportive because what I've heard that some people found is workshopping it the criticism could get severe or something like that or well, and it's not even that i mean though i think that's definitely part of it it's really that we we pick so we accept them in groups of three mm -hmm. and if we can't find a third we're not going to accept the two people oh okay so um oh they apply as threes no, no. they apply as individuals the we interview them. In the pilot year, we had something like 18 applications and we took six people in two pods. Last year, we had 30-some applications and we took nine people. And um, this year, I can already see, because we haven't opened the application process up, but I can see from the inquiries, I think we'll have you know 50 or 60 applications and we'll never take more than 12. And what we're doing is we're really screening them for the ability to work in this way which you know is you become part owner of three books mm -hmm. so you own your book but you also are fully invested in these other two books and if you if you can't do that you can't find a place and then we look at other things like we look at the kind of weaknesses and strengths of the various manuscripts and the ages of people and what they do for a living and all what it, what they bring mm -hmm. you know and then we try to match them and if we can't match people even if we love their work so last year there were two people who we wrote to and said we would have loved to take you but there wasn't a right third for them and mm -hmm. so you know I hope they'll apply again because I really loved what they were doing mm -hmm. so um so that so it's a it's a very weird small mm -hmm. sort of unscalable program mm -hmm. that um that we're just going to keep doing just like this and evolving and growing with for as long as we can because we really see opportunity here. I think one of the testaments to this program is that the agents who screened for us last year, both of whom are really major players, have referred clients mm -hmm. to us of theirs. So they have signed people who they're working with who they are asking us to, to, to the program. Wow, yeah, that's yeah. a very strong word of confidence. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So we're uh, so we're pretty clear. We've got some a magical thing happening. Yeah. So it's very exciting. No, that's that's very nice. And people just need a young writers just need that. Yeah. Um, Old writers need it too. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. beginning on their publishing yeah. path or whatever, right? Yeah. So, Finding and nurturing and maintaining your support group mm -hmm. is actually a very important active part of a writer's life uh, right. that we don't sufficiently give credence to in school. I always force my students right. to um, to to form little groupings and exchange work for just this reason because sure. um, because I think if you get out of grad school and you haven't found your pod, you're gonna yeah. have to you're gonna have to go out into the world and make a pod for yourself. And I do, 
I do think people, you know, what you need from your readers changes over your life and changes probably with every project. But you, everybody needs to talk their problems, their, their book problems through. Sure, they, they become like a tuning fork. Yeah, and, that's a very and good way to put it, yeah. And yeah, I think that, I mean, no matter how good a writer is, sometimes we can't hear we would stop, you know, you go blind or whatever the thing is that you can't, you can't with the, the false notes. You just need someone to say, you know what, that just didn't seem like that belonged or, yeah. Yeah, or the way that, you know, you have friends that you talk to, you know, when you're worried about a personal problem mm -hmm. or, you know, books become these sort of human problems that you need to address in some way. And so having a friend team for your book is like having mom friends or dad friends or sailing friends or, or um, health friends or siblings. They each have different jobs in your life and support you in different ways. And book friends are really important. Well, you brought up siblings, and I wanted to talk about your nonfiction work, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and you've written about how siblings influence yeah. our lives, so yes. I, I really feel that our sibling, our childhood sibling relationships are, are very important uh, formative relationships, that they have lifelong impact in terms of how we interact with friends and partners and lovers and spouses all the way through life that we learn a lot about how to be human in that subworld of the family um, which is the sibling world and right. imprints so much upon us yeah. yeah my older child's best friend is an only child and I think that only children really you know they have the, they do the same kinds of tasks mm -hmm. out in the world mm -hmm. they still have to fill that sort of that need to figure out how to be related to peers and how mm. how um, what what one's um, jobs are in the in the peer world mm. they, they you know they do that work very early on it's it's such a natural development that I think that people who don't have siblings just literally are um, kind of forced by their own natures to go out into the world and make these things happen find yeah. out how to be in that way so I um, I've actually always been really surprised that mainstream sort of analytic theory never really got to the sibling relationship because it just seems to me to be so fundamentally important um, I think I think people take it more seriously now yeah it's they focus there's a lot of focus on uh, parent relationships right but right. I think that you're right because that's how you relate to peers yeah later you know? yeah yeah um, no it is fascinating and I I'm not sure if I want to know how <laughs> <laughs> how successful or messed up I am <laughs> based on that <laughs> measurement well it, it's funny there um, the research is I mean the research that's been done you know and of course I haven't you know that book is probably 20 years old I don't even know but the research basically shows that no matter what your sibling relationship mm -hmm. is in middle life uh -huh. by the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. like 96 percent of siblings have a positive relationship and it's active and engaged in most cases I mean that there is this pull I think in later life that mirrors early life 
Right. You know, there's a kind of framing to a lot of experiences uh -huh. and that that is something that happens, that you do end up, uh, no matter what your middle life experience is uh -huh. with your siblings, you do end up oh. wanting to connect and it makes meaning in your life. In some oh, that, that's, a, that's a positive thing to think about as I... <laughs> and, yeah, a perspective I, to put on things. Yeah, obviously, every um, there are exceptions that prove the rule, but that in general, um, part of the kind of developmental task of later life, which is making sense of what the life course has been, does involve siblings. Right, and you said that there was something that we had walked past. I'm also really interested in those kind of ways that we fall in love with our friends as teenagers oh. that how intense those the that right. love is mm -hmm. that we have with our with our um the sort of first love which um is has a romance to it even sure. though it's not romantic necessarily do you know what i mean and it I, is, yeah yeah that's spend so much time with them yeah yeah there's this sort of symbiotic connection, which is like uh, the love we feel for a love partner mm -hmm. that we have with our, our friends in early adolescence. And I think that's a formative, I think mm -hmm. that's a very formative relationship as well. Those kind of transitioning out of the world of the family, but not yet a romantic love, romantic Mm -hmm. uh, friendships or something. I don't sure. even know how you would describe them, but I've been starting to think about that as well, it's, something. It's ritualized, and some people like exchange like these gifts or these tokens, yeah. and yeah. you know, yeah. And the Victorians yeah. really yeah. understood it, but I think in our culture there is. Um, I just think we don't necessarily give enough credence to how important those relationships are. Right. No, it's interesting. I, it does give me a lot to think about. And I guess since we're an educational initiative, so we're also involved in the same kind of thing, and you've addressed it in, in some ways, but how can we um, better improve our education models, you know, to be teaching, embracing the arts, creating more creative individuals, engaged individuals, not just in arts education, but, you know, throughout? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Susan, I, solve uh, it for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, please. I, I, I just don't want to share, you know. No. I mean, obviously, I believe that reading is incredibly important for creating empathy and enhancing the imagination. And I think the idea I read somewhere earlier this week that because of the Common Core, many students graduate from high school never having read a novel, you um, know, and mm -hmm. that's kind of astounding to me. Yeah. I think, you know, the, all the research that says that we develop empathy through imagining the lives of others and the novel mm -hmm. is a form that is, you know, has been created for that purpose. I don't see how we can not require our students to read stories. Yeah. That would be my broadside is we must, we must read. I mean, people yeah. just have to read. Also, to be able to absorb in silence. There's so much distraction and noise now, and I right. think that reading really teaches us that. And not always construction and noise. Yeah. yeah, but reading yeah. teaches us that, you know. Yeah. I see, you know, with my kids who are in their early 20s that, you know, 
that um, it's very hard for them to be still. They do read, mm -hmm. but they can read with headphones on and yeah, stuff. It's I strange. Could, could never do that. I mean, I just I was at a writing retreat last weekend, and the people who put it on, who are in their late twenties and early thirties, had conceived of having music you know, all the time. And the participants who were, mm. you know, in their 40s and 50s just were like, turn that off! <laughs> because yeah, you have to focus. Well, yeah. I find it hard to focus. Some people have a different focus, but... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're forgetting, we're forgetting the importance of silence in creativity, in the empty spaces, the meditative spaces. And listening. The idea that you would stop and try to identify all the various sounds that we can hear right now, construction mm -hmm. and cars and birds and, mm -hmm. you know, and wind and just that if you aren't listening for those sounds, you've missed them. And, right. you know, and if you have them covered up with a song, you're not yeah. going to hear them. Sure. No, it is important. It's it's amazing to think about the changes that we witness in our lifetimes. Yes. I find it. I feel I feel like an old fogey sometimes <laughs> explaining. I mean, I started on a Selectric. It was really different, and I'm still looking for a laptop that has Selectric keys that I can hear the click, 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 click. Oh, click, but that click. is a satisfying kind of music. Yeah. Paul Ostro interviewed. He works on a typewriter. I can see why. It's, yeah, it's very I would handwrite it in the typewriter. He doesn't even have his his fingers do not touch a computer. Well, he has like someone else who manages things. Yes, <laughs> well, I should be so lucky. But <laughs> well, I love his work, so I think yeah. that that that's really telling. You yeah. know, I mean, it's just I. I, I do think that that sort of connection to the work, it also makes you go more slowly. And you think about somebody like Dickens, you know, writing these huge novels in serial form. And then you can sometimes see revisions when they exist. And that's really interesting because, gosh, he kept all that in, in his, his head. head. Yeah, and we don't... Yeah, we and can we, search, find and search. Yeah, yeah we find and search. Yeah, yes. yeah it's very yeah. different, so... Yeah, so it's no, and it is interesting. And we used to type on um, what do you call it? Like a um, not a photocopy, but we had this kind of a carbon paper. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, ditto. Yeah, but it is interesting because as a painter, well, I also write, but as a painter, um, and you, you, when you look at older works of art, you can see that palimpsest, which you're saying echoes of other works coming in. You right. can see how building it up that way, having to do it by hand, as opposed to, I'm not saying the writing was always better, but I'm just oh, no. having, have, yeah, also there's advance, the, the, yeah. there's definite advantages of being able to do all the drafts, but um, it, with visual art, I do think that having that hand that was doing the drawing, that which developed it into a painting, which, you know, then maybe made a sculpture. Right. That time investment, you see it. Yeah. 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 I mean, you yeah. just do, and you see a kind of a level of, of, of obsessing that I think we don't, um, we don't allow ourselves at every moment in every draft. And, I mean, I, th I imagine that William Carlos Williams was like, all day long he was imagining what he was going to write at night and I sure. think that there's there's some way in which the busy the buzziness of the way we live it really, really does get in the way of obsession 
So, um, so I, I agree with you. I think silence is key. Mm -hmm. To um, finding our, our true voices. Yeah, and to in fully inhabiting the art that we're trying to make or appreciate. I mean, I don't see how you can read a book with the TV on or mm -hmm. music on. or I mean, they're just different activities, and I guess we just need more time you know, mm -hmm. in the day to be able to do all of those things. But I had a student years ago who said, oh... I, you know, I write all the time. I don't have to, time to read. I'll read when I'm dead. And I was like, you'll never be a writer if you don't read. Like, you'll yeah. never. We have to be interested in other people's stories. So right. it's like, right. like... Well, that comes back to empathy. Yeah. If yeah. you have no empathy for the craft of other people, I mean, yeah. what are you doing? I mean, why are you doing it? I mean, part of what is so fascinating, I'm sure, with the making of paintings mm -hmm. as well as with the making of prose text is just mm -hmm. that you know you want to see what other people are doing and what they're imagining and get ideas from them and celebrate them I mean it's just it's like a conversation you're yeah. having this you've had yourself done that had dialogues across time with other yeah writers and, yeah and definitely across space right now mm -hmm. as well obviously there's so much published that one can't read everything but I really I mean I, I, I really want to, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I want to know everything that's going on, so, yeah. Well, thanks so much, uh, Susan Sarf-Merrill, for everything that you're doing, your, your own writing, but also about, you know, encouraging reading and the arts and writing, this wonderful program that you're directing, you, co-directing yeah. at the Stony Brook Southampton. Um, I'm really excited to to read the the graduates of this program. Oh, they're <laughs> and great. To, and they're to find great. out more about it, if we can celebrate that. It's, it seems like a wonderful initiative. Oh, thank you, Mia. It was yeah. wonderful talking with you. Yeah. Thanks for adding your voice to the creative process. Oh, thank you. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Anna Chu. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submission at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition Traveling to Leading Universities or published on our website www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? 